Hello, and welcome to episode 78 of the Movie Marathoners podcast, part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. I'm your host, Mati, and joining me this week is my girlfriend, Dana Nyland. You're becoming quite the podcast regular, Dana. How's it going? It's going okay. Um, I think on the day that this episode comes out, it will be the day of the inauguration. So today is an exciting day for the listeners. Yeah, let's hope it all goes okay. <laughs> yeah. I'm not confident. Yeah. Well, I mean, probably, probably wise, but. <laughs> well, today is not that day. Today is January 17th, which means that we are a little over two weeks into 2021. Uh, 2020 is over. And with that, there's another year of films in the books. Obviously, it was a weird and in many ways awful year, but we did get a fair share of good to great films, and today we're going to celebrate them. Last week, I was joined by Patrick Burke from the Star Draft to talk about our top five acting performances from 2020. It's a great episode. Definitely check that out. But today, Dana and I will be discussing the top 10 films of 2020. But unlike the normal ranking episode where we kind of each make our own lists, this week we actually sat down together and collaborated to come up with a list of 10 films that we think are the best of the year. It required some compromise. There are some films on the list that might not be in our individual top 10 lists, but together we've created the official, unofficial Movie Marathoners top 10 list. So what we'll do is go through and talk about why each of these films made the cut. These conversations will be spoiler-free, but as usual, I'll provide the stamps for each film in the show notes if you want to skip around a bit. And lastly, let's start with the usual disclaimers. Dana and I have seen every single film that could possibly be considered a 2020 release. The reason that Nomadland and Minari aren't on this list is not because we haven't seen the films. It's actually because they're terrible films, and we do not like them whatsoever, and if you do, you should feel bad. On that note, this list is not at all subjective. It is an objective fact. If your favorite film is not on this list, it's because you are wrong and you have a terrible taste in movies. But actually, the criteria for the movies to be on this list was that they had to have a wide release in 2020. So if there was a movie that is going to come out wide release in 2021, even though it's technically an Oscar contender or whatever, we didn't count it for this list. Uh, With all that out of the way, let's dive in. Dana, why don't you introduce the first film on our list, our number 10 film of 2020? Happily. So our number 10 film of 2020 is Baccarat. So if this movie isn't on your radar yet, I can be the first of one of those people to tell you that this movie, I think, is better if you go in knowing very little about it. Um, I will say that if you do a preliminary Google search to find the synopsis, the synopsis that Google will show you is blatantly wrong. Um, (laughs) So don't even bother. I will share the one sentence synopsis from IMDb, which reads, after the death of her grandmother, Teresa comes home to her matriarchal village in a near future Brazil to find a succession of sinister events that mobilizes all of its residents. You will spend much of this movie asking yourself, wait, where is this going? And just when you start to think you know, you'll be assured that you actually don't. But to me, that was part of the fun. The movie is two hours and 12 minutes long, which isn't short. But as I told Mati, when it was over, I would have happily kept watching events unfold in this world for another 30 minutes or more. Mm -hmm. This is a Brazilian French film directed by Juliano Dornels and Kleber Mendoza Filho. I hope I am saying that right. 
This movie is full of faces that were unfamiliar to me, which I think actually functioned to maintain some of the mystery throughout. Because you're, when you're watching something like Interstellar and someone like Matt Damon shows up halfway through, you're like, okay, I'm on red alert because Matt Whoa. Damon's here. Matt Damon spoilers for Interstellar. Okay, Matt Damon shows up in Interstellar. But for me and for a majority of the U.S. audience, I imagine, you're going to be lacking that context when different characters are introduced in this movie. Mm-hmm. And so you really just have to surrender yourself to, to what's going on because you probably won't know. Because I am being so opaque about what this movie is about uh, for for reasons, I will note that it's not a universal recommendation and that there is some pretty graphic violence and some disturbing imagery at times. So if those are things you would prefer to avoid, this movie might not be for you. I've seen a myriad of genre classifications for Baccarat, ranging from Western to mystery to horror to adventure, but you really just kind of have to see it for yourself. Um, This movie is available to watch on the Criterion channel, or you can rent or buy it on VOD. Yeah, so this is a film that I'm a little cooler on. Um, I think it's quite good, but I thought the end didn't completely live up to my expectations because I've heard a lot about this. And I've heard specifically, as you were kind of indicating, that it's very genre bending and that it sort of starts as one thing and becomes another thing. And I don't completely agree with that assessment of the movie. I think it kind of stays as one thing. There is a twist in this film or sort of a twist, I guess, and it kind of recontextualizes a lot of the film in a different way, but I don't think it ever really fully shifts from one genre to the other. And because of that, I felt that I was a little disappointed by the end because I was sort of waiting for it to completely go into that genre. And that is a super vague thing to say, I know. And and obviously we, we could talk more specifically about it if we wanted to spoil it, but we don't want to because I do still think that this film is worth watching. There's a lot to like in this film, even from my perspective. I think the introduction of the world of the film is really well done, especially in the beginning portions of the film. And I do think, as you're saying, the film does does a good job at holding your attention. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think to speak a little bit to what you said about the the genre comment, I I think that part of the reason that that so much conversation is going on about the genre is that it's a little bit based on our perceptions of what a movie that's about the kind of community that this movie is about yeah. is like. Yeah. It's set in, you know, a small village that's very remote. Um and this 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 film does deal with themes regarding, you know, colonization and colonizers and things like that. And so when a when a sort of futuristic aspects are brought into this film that is centered on this small village, I think that that is what we're 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 not accustomed to seeing that kind of of content, you know. And mm-hmm. I think that that is point. part of why um, people are having that reaction. Um, and I guess I don't I don't have that much of a developed thesis about that, but I do think that that's that's some of what's at work there. That's a good point. And I guess it was probably just one of those things where I sort of thought it was going to go even further into genre territory, and it mm-hmm. doesn't. Again, that doesn't make it a bad movie or anything. It's obviously why I like I don't disagree with it being on this list, even though mm-hmm. I'm not as hot on the movie as you are. Mm-hmm. I will say, just as a PSA, this film is a, uh, as you're saying, Brazilian French film. So it's got Portuguese, I think, as the main mm-hmm. language that it's used in. But um, we watch all our movies with subtitles, and we actually had to turn the subtitles off for this film because it was doing that thing where it's not just describing the dialogue, it's describing the sound effects and everything that's happening in the film. And there's a moment in this film where a gun goes off very suddenly, and it was completely spoiled for us yeah, in the subtitles. Yeah, that was unfortunate. Super frustrating. So definitely, if you're going to go into this movie, turn the subtitles off. 
Criterion will obviously still provide the subtitles for the Portuguese, but just make sure you're not like including additional subtitles because I do think that that took me out of the film a bit. Yeah, definitely just use the ones directly from the film rather than like turning them on on your TV. Yeah. So that's Baccarat. That's our number 10 film, and you can watch that on the Criterion channel. Uh, I'll take our ninth film because it's the one that I sort of championed for that Dana's a little more cold on. And that is Never Rarely, Sometimes, Always. I want to spend a few minutes talking with you about your relationships, okay? Because they can affect your health. Did you know that? No? All right. So I'm going to ask you some questions. They can be really personal. And all you have to do is answer either never, rarely, sometimes, or always. It's kind of like multiple choice, but it's not a test. Okay. Okay. So Never Rarely, Sometimes, Always is a small film directed by Eliza Hittman about a girl named Autumn Callahan, who's played by Sidney Flanagan, who travels from her small town in Pennsylvania to New York City with her cousin to get an abortion. Um, It's a very understated film. There isn't a lot of dialogue. Characters don't outwardly express their feelings. The camera isn't very dynamic. Instead, the camera sort of hovers and lingers on scenes or specific moments, specific interactions. And in a lot of ways, it feels a lot like a documentary in the sense that there's nothing particularly extraordinary happening. Um, We're kind of just spending time with these two girls, and I think the film does an amazing job at capturing the feeling of being a young woman. Um, And and it does that without explicitly stating anything. I really love this film. Um, It's not one that I necessarily feel the urge to revisit soon or maybe ever again, um, because it's it's quite an unpleasant film to experience. But in terms of putting the audience in a time and a place and making the audience feel what the characters are feeling, I feel like this movie for this year is second to none. There's this one moment that I want to call out where the two girls are on a bus going to New York City, and a young man just sort of taps on the cousin's shoulder to talk to her. And the way that the camera lingers on the close-up of his hand on her shoulder just says so much without saying anything. It's so clear how uncomfortable she is, how invasive that simple action can be, And this is theoretically a conceivably innocent act, one that men in particular probably don't think twice about doing, just tapping a random woman on the shoulder to ask them a question. But they probably should, and I think that the movie shows that. Um, I can't think of another film that has so successfully captured like the dread and the general uneasiness of being a young woman in today's world um, and doing it in a way that is beautifully displayed but doesn't feel preachy. Um, It just sort of feels like it's giving us a truth about the world. And moments like that happen again and again in this film where it shows you an ugly, although sometimes also beautiful truth without dialogue, without making any of the subtext actual text. It just lets you feel it. And that's not even talking about what the film is actually saying about abortion and how many barriers are put in place in order to get one. Um, All of that stuff is really fascinating, but that does dip into spoilers a little bit. So I will leave it at that. I think this film is absolutely wonderful. Dana, break my heart. So I I think that this film does what it does very well. I just didn't really like what it does. <laughs> and and that's not to say it's it's not good. I I do think that there is something here and this is something that I can see why people like. You mentioned the sort of nearing documentary feel about it and that's something that that I also felt where but the for me the realism for realism's sake went a little bit too far to where I was like, I, I am just having a really bad time watching this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not 
enjoying myself. And, you know, again, and that's that's not to say that 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 doesn't mean it's a good movie. And that has nothing to do with also my, you know, feelings on abortion or anything. Um, you know, I'm I'm not, you know, uncomfortable with the subject matter or anything or, you know, it, it wasn't so much that that made me uncomfortable. It was just, as you mentioned, these really long periods of time where no one is talking and we're just sort of following them around. And then when there is conversation, sometimes, you know, it's taking place in these these clinical facilities where, you know, clinicians are asking the main character questions. And I felt like I was sitting in a, you know, waiting room answering invasive questions about <laughs> my personal life. But and I know that in some instances, you know, saying, oh, I felt like I was there could be praised. But for me, I was like, I don't want to be in a doctor's office waiting room right now. Um, so for me, this, this was not an enjoyable experience. And again, there are people for whom I see why you would like this, but I think that there are also a lot of people who would not enjoy this. And I mean, you're supported by the critics score on Rotten Tomatoes, or I mean the, uh, the audience score. Whatever uh, what the, is it? It's got a 99% in the critic score, but a 20% in the audience score. Oh my gosh. So this is definitely one of those films that you need to be ready for, I guess is the way to say it. Uh, And it's bizarre because I tend to not be a huge fan of films that don't have a lot of dialogue. I don't Mm -hmm. really, um, I'm I'm not usually a huge proponent of films that are considered slice of lifey or don't really have a plot. Mm -hmm. But something about this one, just the way that it made me feel like I was in the character's shoes Mm -hmm. in a way that a lot of other films don't even though they're still about similar subject matter, I think was really, really effective for me. So I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not 100% sure why this one works so well, but I do think it's just because of the way that the camera sort of focuses on focuses on these things and tells you information without beating it over the head. Mm-hmm. It's interesting you say that because that also made me think of another movie that we watched not long before we watched this that has a really high critic score and a really low audience score, which is um, The Assistant. Mm -hmm. Uh, with Julia Garner, which is sort of a similar experience where you're following a young woman around and just sort of going through her her daily life. Um, And there are there is a kind of intentional monotony to it. Um, I did enjoy that movie quite a bit more, even though I wouldn't I would again go so far as to say I didn't have fun watching it, but I definitely appreciated it a little bit more. And maybe it's something about just the sort of, um, you know, the the knowledge that the protagonist of never really sometimes always was more imminently in distress that just added a Mm -hmm. sort of layer of unpleasantness to it um, because otherwise i can't really speak to why i would like one so much more than the other that's certainly fair and i mean i enjoyed the assistant as well but just not as much as never really sometimes always and i i do think that maybe it's just the time that you consume the film i i don't really know but there are similar films in that sense and Mm -hmm. they're also very similar to like the first 30 minutes of Pieces of a Woman, mm-hmm. which is a film that didn't make this list um, because I, well, we didn't love the film, but also because it was released in 2021. So there's lots of films that have this type of documentary style, but I do think that never rarely, sometimes always, whether or not it's like for you, as in you, the listener, or you, Dana, that I do think that it does a lot of very special things. Mm-hmm. So that is Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, and you can check that one out, I believe, on HBO Max. Dana, why don't you introduce our number eight film? Sure. Our number eight film is Bad Education. I talked about this movie what feels like a million years ago leading up to the Emmys in September when um, it 
uh, won for best quote unquote television movie, which is kind of funny because in my opinion, it's so far beyond what we would normally have thought of as a TV movie. But of course, now the idea of what is a TV movie is being redefined because we watch pretty much everything on our TVs. Yeah. TV movie screams like Hallmark Channel yeah, or, or like something DCOM. to me. Yeah. Um, but I would say this is a mid-tier decom. Yeah, yeah. Not quite High School Musical, a little bit better than Hatching Pete. Fair, fair. Yeah. So even at that point in September, um, we had watched Bad Education well prior to the Emmys, so it was a long time ago. So so Matty and I rewatched this just um, a few days ago to see how it held up, to make sure that we were remembering how much we liked it properly. And the answer so quickly was a resounding yes. Um, this movie's so good. Yeah. And it's based on a true story of a school district on Long Island that had, under the leadership of Superintendent Frank Tassone, played by Hugh Jackman, achieved huge regional acclaim and prestige, which starts to unravel when a student journalist begins looking into some shady dealings with regard to the school's finances. Bad Education is directed by Corey Finley, who I, in the absence of evidence, believe to be about 12 years old, which the brevity of his <laughs> Wikipedia page will have you believe there is nothing there. Um, he does an amazing job here in just his second directorial performance. And I love the way this movie is constructed and just how mm. things are punctuated and framed throughout it. It feels so craftful and intentional. The performances in this especially from Hugh Jackman, along with Allison Janney, who plays his assistant superintendent, Pam, are amazing. These are two actors with so much presence who are capable of so much nuance that they feel like fully realized, morally complex individuals, which is important here because this is in many ways a sort of classic unraveling downfall movie, the likes of which we've seen where that plays out in different industries like finance or big tech or Hollywood itself. Mm -hmm. But I don't think I've ever seen it take place in a school-based setting in the way that this movie does. And the school setting is really important here because, as this movie will highlight for you, most people pursue careers in education, at least initially, for noble reasons. And it's generally not a line of work you'd get into if you were seeking fame or fortune or, you know, or something glamorous. So how does corruption ultimately work its way in anyway? And what happens to people that they could work in education and arrive at a point where they are no longer in it for the same reasons they got in it at the beginning? And how do we make sense of a person in a position of power in an industry that isn't supposed to be about power at all? And who are these people who are shaping, you know, who our children turn out to be? These are the questions that I think that the movie pokes at and allow pretty much anyone an inroad into this movie because education is such a universal experience that so many people take for granted. Mm -hmm. And it is that very taking for granted that will fuel some hard-hitting Hugh Jackman soliloquies in this film that I re can <laughs> recommend to pretty much everyone without reservation. I think this is a really just mass appeal watchable movie. I completely agree. I love the pace at which this film divulges information mm -hmm. to the audience. It is a slow but steady stream where you're constantly learning more and more information, prop basically up until the credits. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't like obnoxiously hold things back for this huge reveal in the third act, but it also doesn't just give everything in an exposition dump when like the first um, ball drops. It's, right. it's very slowly seeped out and it makes the whole film so incredibly engaging. And I think that's really cool for a film that is about education management. Like that's not a innately fascinating thing like mm -hmm. mobsters or making movies or anything. This is one of the most boring things you could probably think about is like being 
like higher up in the education system. But I guess what I want to ask you, Dana, is like, do you think that being so in the education system as you are, like your main your main job is in the education system? Do you think that speaks more for you, this movie? Um, maybe a little bit, just in the way that, you know, things like we like to see, you know, our own worlds reflected back to us. And I mean, yeah. I don't have any experiences in the education world that are like this. Oh, you aren't embezzling <laughs> money from the Spoilers. Waltham Public Schools. Um so I think that something that a lot of people talk about, I feel like from the time when we were in school is, you know, like, why did this, you know, adult become a teacher? Like she doesn't even like kids. Or like, why does this person, you know, work at the school? They, you know, they mm-hmm. they don't seem like they're getting joy out of this. And and Hugh Jackman has some times in this movie where he'll sort of talk about this idea of like, why do you think we got into this? Or like, we are trying to to help these kids. And I think that there is a lot of burnout in in the education just career path because of the the thanklessness of it. And that's yeah. something that is harped on here. And I think that my my sort of intimacy with that um, in my just, you know, professional experience makes me just, yeah, like a little bit more interested in it. But again, because, you know, at least here in the U.S., like we all sort of have, um, you know, we are fortunate to have public school systems available to us. And we all sort of have these these experiences that no matter where you grew up, there are some things that I feel like we all just had happen. You know, mm-hmm. there was always like that thing that happened at your high school that everyone talked about or, you know, that that one teacher. And so I think that there is just again, there's a way in for everyone here to be to think about the teachers and the, or the administration at the school where they grew up and, and what those people were really like. I really also like that this film highlights the hypocriticalness of the secondary school system and how parents interact with teachers and things like that, right? Like there's a couple moments in this film where parents are willing to bend the rules when it aids their student. You know, there's nothing wrong in a parent's eyes with a teacher breaking the rules to give their kid a second chance at a test or using sympathy to be like, oh, my son needs to get a a good grade on this test or else he's not going to get into Harvard. And especially in this type of school system that's really, really obsessed with getting into like the top colleges and stuff like that. That was sort of an environment that I was really familiar with in high school. There's this sort of hypocriticalness when they start to just get pissed that the teachers are also bending the rules. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's a difference between bending like the school school rules and actually bending literal rules and embezzling money, millions of dollars or thousands, whatever. But I do think that it's interesting, This the way that the film sort of shows that everybody is so willing to be the victim of their own story until they commit some sort of crime that makes them the culprit. And how those people defend themselves, I think, is very universal, that even if you've never embezzled money from a public school system, there's plenty of other areas where this goes of like coming up with excuses to justify your own actions and saying, Mm -hmm. well, I, you know, I came out with this or like I wanted to help the kids. If I wanted to come into finance and make a lot of money, I would have, but I'm here. So like, like, what's the big deal if I take some money off the top, you know, Mm -hmm. no one's really going to miss it. And that sort of justification, I think, is really fascinating, especially in like the idea of an American school system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that there are a lot of parents who, you know, even if they they might not think it, it's like if you knew you could get away with it, like what would you do to ensure that your child would succeed, you know, academically? And Mm -hmm. I think that there are a lot of parents who would do more than they're proud of, which we saw in the recent college admission scandal thingy um and that's not that's not you know the that's not 
what this movie it's is not, yeah, it's at its core about, but I do think that it, it brings up that idea and in raising that just raises about everyone else of what what would you do if you knew you could get away with it and it seemed like a victimless crime. Right. Yeah. The other thing that I'll say about this film is that, you know, Dana, we have been really fascinated with Australian accents as of late <laughs> because it's been forced at us repeatedly by HBO things that Nicole Kidman stars in where she is um, an American uh, character. But Nicole Kidman is probably the worst. She's probably the most talented actor to not be able to do an American accent, believably. Her accent is atrocious. And of course, here, Hugh Jackman is also an Australian playing an American vice principal or superintendent. And he does a pretty good job, except for there's one moment in the film when he has to say the word four, like four times right in a row. And every time he says four, his Australian accent comes out like crazy. He says four. And it's (laughs) really funny. (laughs) Yeah, no, I do think that he was generally better at it than Nicole, who we still do love and think she's a great actress, yeah, yeah, to be yeah. clear. Um, but yeah, they both are. And again, Hugh Jackman is is great in this role. Oh, yeah. No, he. I feel like he really is the only person that could play this role with the type of charisma that he has while mm-hmm. also still having that sort of competence factor, mm-hmm. but also being somebody that looks a little insecure. I don't know. You wouldn't think that from like the Wolverine actor, but there's something about him in this film that just is so perfect. Yeah, because he he is capable of playing the sort of rough Wolverine character, but then also playing like a clean cut pretty boy, you know, type character. So if you haven't seen Bad Education, we'd highly recommend it. It's an HBO film, um, which means you can check it out on HBO Max. That is our number eight film of 2020. I'll introduce our seventh film of 2020, Palm Springs. Dude, what the fuck are you doing? Oh, come on, relax. I just, uh, I just clipped him. You did not just clip him! He's a fucking sadist! I I was just saving you! You should be thanking me! He was gonna kill you! Okay, well, no thank you! Freeze! Put your hands above your head! Suck my dick, officer, bitch! Seriously, man, just leave us alone. You gonna fucking tase me, fuckface? Oh, 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 yeah, go ahead and tase me! Come on, just do it! So, Palm Springs is the Hulu release. It's a comedy that was originally planned for theatrical release, but came onto our TVs instead, and I'm really happy it did because it really works wonderfully as a home watch. This is a comedy starring Andy Samberg and Kristen Milioti. I can never say her name. If you haven't seen this film, just stop listening to this part right now. Skip ahead, pause it, go watch the film. The less you know about this, the better, because the premise is really wild, um, and it makes for a very fun surprise if you don't know what's going on. But to talk about it, I am going to spoil the premise of the film now. So, okay. Andy Samberg and Kristen Milioti are stuck in a time loop similar to Groundhog Day. Yes, I learned that it's not Groundhog's Day when I reviewed this earlier in the year, but it is Groundhog Day. And the film has just an absolute blast with this premise where these two strangers are stuck in a time loop in what is on the surface a vacation getaway of Palm Springs. Um, both Sandberg and Milioti, they're a delight. Uh, Sandberg, I think is really, really funny. And I think that Milioti is really good at keeping up with that particular type of energy and also introducing a new energy so that Sandberg doesn't feel overbaked. The film kind of bounces between the two of them in terms of who's the main character at any given point, but this is just a really, really enjoyable film. It's well-made. It's very clever and witty. 
Um, but it's not particularly demanding. If you listened to our conversation about never, rarely, sometimes, always, and you were like, no, perfectly fair, <laughs> watch Palm Springs instead. It's pretty low on the mind and, and will not make you feel anything particularly unpleasant. It's a very relaxing film that I think came out at a very unrelaxing time when a lot of people really needed something to help them feel relaxed. That is not to say that it's the only thing that makes the film good. I think that the way the film introduces its time travel rules and the way that it sticks to them is really engaging, and they do a lot of really clever things to subvert that particular time loop genre. So um, like all the other films on this list, of course, I would really recommend this. It's probably one of the most purely enjoyable films on our list. Yeah, I think that, I mean, I, I know a lot of people who have seen this and I feel like everyone who's seen it likes it, you know, if not loves it. Um, it is, as Mati said, just a just a fun watch. And I think, you know, now that it's it's winter, it's like just like nice, kind of like a warm escape and just like watching people hang out by the pool and stuff <laughs> um, can be nice. But yeah, I I love the way that this movie doesn't waste time on bringing you into the time loop thing and just immediately asks you to accept it because i think that a lot of times movies that aren't really about you know science fiction or something like that you know when they try to get into a science fiction explanation of why what's going on is going on it's just kind of like okay that doesn't make any sense and why are you doing this but this Andy Samberg just, you know, pretty quickly says um, to Kristen Milioti, like, oh, it's one of those, you know, infinite time loop situations. And she's just like, oh, fuck. And it's just <laughs> like that. That's kind of it. And they're there. You know, physics will come into play later, but it doesn't really ask you. It just it just tells you, like, this is where we are now. And you just have to deal with it, which makes sense because we know that. Um, I mean, as far as I know, there is no way to get stuck in this kind of loop. Um, and if there is, then I'm yet to experience it. Yeah, I yeah, would, yeah, me me too. <laughs> I um I I think this is a really a fun update to Groundhog Day. Um I think my my dad who's a big Mil Bill Murray fan and I feel like doesn't really like a lot of new movies that came out like this because it was like, ha, huh, Groundhog Day. Um <laughs> so yeah, I think this is something that I would recommend just to anyone who hasn't seen it as Mati said, um check it out. Yeah, for sure. So that is our number seven film, uh, Palm Springs, which you can check out on Hulu. I'm going to also introduce our number six film, because this is one that I sort of championed for a little bit, and that is Trial of the Chicago 7. So Trial of the Chicago 7 is the film about the 1969 trial of seven defendants who were arrested due to the counterculture protests during the 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago. So it's a courtroom drama. It's directed by Aaron Sorkin, and it's starring an ensemble cast. So this is right up my alley, basically. Uh, a huge fan of courtroom dramas. I really like Aaron Sorkin, and I really like ensemble casts with a lot of different personalities. Um, I was the one that championed this one to make the cut, and I feel like I almost need to defend the inclusion of this film because I feel like a lot of people aren't that positive on it, at least online. I mean, I don't really talk to people not online anymore, but <laughs> I'm literally right here. <laughs> um, I mean, a lot of people are just very lukewarm or even kind of cold about this film. And it seems like one of the principal reasons for that is because the film is a little toothless in that the film has a lot of things to say, but those things are a little bit out of touch and quite a bit more idealistic than the world today presents with its rampant racism, bigotry and injustice at virtually the highest level possible in our government. 
And I think that that's definitely a fair assessment, but I don't think that that necessarily makes the film bad or that you can't enjoy the film. And I think this film, what it is, is a wonderful testament to the power of the spoken word. And I mean, that's not common to this movie that, you know, that's most of Aaron Sorkin's screenplays. In fact, it's probably the principal driving force of Aaron Sorkin's entire career. But what I really love about this film is the dialogue. It absolutely crackles. It is thrilling to watch people bounce off of each other. The movie has a ton of momentum, at least in my opinion, and it feels like there is a excess amount of energy from minute one. I really like the characters in the film and how they bounce off each other. Each character is played by an actor that I love. This film has one of the most frustrating judge characters, I would say, in all of cinematic history. And the way that he is kind of combative with all the protagonists of the film is just really, really fun to watch. And I do think ultimately that this film does have meaningful stuff to say. To me, the film is fundamentally about the ideological differences between the, the Sasha Baron Cohen's more radical Abby Hoffman and the Eddie Redmayne's more by the books Tom Hayden. They both want change and they both want injustice or sorry, they both want justice. <laughs> But how they attempt to incite that change is very different. And the film explores how both those methods can be good and how they can also be bad. And I think the film's resolution happens under an idealist theory and an oversimplification of the politics in America. But I think that that idealism, which is ultimately saying that by and large, everyone means well and there's only a select few incompetent people that are the problem. I think that is a idealistic hallmark of Aaron Sorkin, and I don't think that the film should or needs to be read as some sort of manifesto on the way forward in our current political landscape. But I do understand why that is not easy to separate for people. I understand why for many people it doesn't work. But for me, I think it's a fantastically energetic and electric film. I think it has great dialogue and mostly great performances, I would say. So I really, really enjoyed this film. So I I really wanted to like this film a lot going in. It has a lot of a lot of actors I really like. For me, I don't know if it's just it's a little bit too late for this kind of movie for me. And I think almost like if this had come out Obama era that it might have been a little bit well received, more yeah. well received. Um I think that especially in, you know, the political moment when this came out, especially being about about protest um, which is something that there has, you know, with good reason, been been so much of in the past year. Um, I think, as you mentioned in the beginning, it just it did feel toothless to me. It, it felt like it it lacked the urgency needing to meet the moment. And that is not to say that that this movie alone or movies in general even have a responsibility to to you know change the political landscape itself by themselves, but. To watch this kind of idealism coming from Aaron Sorkin at this point feels like an idealism that only can exist for certain people. And I think that that is the problem with it, is that Aaron Sorkin is able to, and I don't want to be, you know, you know, down on the, like, oh, the straight white man thing, but like he, I think, is is able to have an optimism about humanity that isn't accessible to other people, particularly in this film. Um, we see the only black man who is on trial, Bobby Seale, played by Yaya Abdul-Mateen, treated horribly in a way that's not even really addressed. And I think that the movie really drops the ball in its treatment mm. of the Bobby Seale character, um, mm. who is is very physically abused in the movie. And then I think at the end, isn't his sort of independent 
plotline isn't really resolved. And I think that the resolution of this movie is very Aaron Sorkin-y in that it's very like the there's a swell in the music and you kind of get chills. But after it's like, okay, well, this isn't going to change anything. And so it's not even so much that in in the real world, this isn't going to change anything. Because again, I don't think that's the film's responsibility. But it's like even in the world that the movie takes place in, it didn't feel like anything was changing. And I also think that Sorkin watered down some of the characters themselves, um, particularly Abby Hoffman, who's played by Sasha Baron Cohen, was known to be a very, very leftist figure. And a lot of the things that he says in the movie are things that, based on my understanding of who Abby Hoffman was a person, were things that he would never say. And I think it is a based on a nostalgia from Aaron Sorkin for certain ideals that, you know, good will triumph and we just need to get back to our, you know, being good people um, sensibilities. But I don't think that it accurately reflects what the these liberal, um, quote unquote, radicals of the time really believed. Okay, I mean, I can't like tell you that you're wrong for feeling that way. But when you say that, like, it's a little too late for this film, I just like for me, I can still have a film like this and still have and celebrate other films that are trying to say something more about the specific moment. And to the point that you make that this is Aaron Sorkin writing this, that like, I don't think it would feel that believable, I don't know, or genuine if he were to make a film about some of the struggles that are not his to share. And I mean, we're going to talk about another film on this list later that I think directly addresses that stuff and is from a auteur that is much, much more suited to tell that type of story. So I, I do feel that like, I, I completely see what you're saying and I understand like why you feel that way. But I still think that what this film does in terms of like, I don't know, just I guess filmmaking, I don't know, like showing characters and having them interact in an energetic and fascinating way, I think is just really fun and enjoyable to watch. But I do understand that like, maybe you don't want to have fun with this film because the world isn't fun right now. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think that I and I, I see what you're saying about, you know, Aaron Sorkin not being the one to to make the kind of film that I'm talking about. And I guess that maybe maybe it is just the idea of a film about protest in 1968, especially, which is a really, you know, kind of year that was full of strife with regard to the civil rights movement and things like that. And a lot of the the political movement around that was centered around um, social issues that I think that he skates around is more what I'm saying. So it's not that I'm like, oh, I wish that he talked about those things in this movie. It's kind of like, well, there are more interesting things. And, and I get what you're saying, that this can still exist and there can be those other things. So I think that we just, you know, we're just not on the same page about that, which is fine. Yeah, I think with that, we'll probably just have to move on. Um, I mean, I guess, what do you like not recommend this movie then? No, or? I, I I don't. I think that there are a lot of people who would like this movie and I don't think it's a bad movie. I just I'm not I didn't love it and I wouldn't recommend it to everyone. But I do think that there are people who will like it. OK, so I mean. I feel like if you heard this conversation, you could probably pretty easily tell whether you're going to like this movie or not. I think it's a similar thing to Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, in that like what it does, it does really well. But um, yeah, definitely it's got some issues and it's tough to separate the film from when the film was released. So mm -hmm. who knows, maybe in 50 years, this film will be 
a fun little salve yeah. when we fixed everything. I, I don't I don't know. But anyways, uh, this is our number six film. It's Trial of the Chicago 7, and you can check that out on Netflix. Let's go ahead and take a break here. And when we return, we'll continue the Movie Marathoners Top 10 Films of 2020. Hi, this is comedian and writer, and let's be honest, I do a lot of things. This is Dean Archipotas, the host of Whiskey Business, the podcast not so much about whiskey as it is one with whiskey. Yes, we drink and talk about whiskey, but we do so much more with so many interesting people. For example, we talk to comedians like Greg Warren. You know, I don't want to brag, but let's just say I can walk into a Red Lobster and get whatever. You know, I think the pause right there is probably more important than the word. Amazing athletes like boxing champion Buster Douglas. When a fighter's down and he's looking for his mouthpiece instead of trying to get up. That's when I knew it was over. Yeah, Yeah. right? And yes, Bigfoot chasers. Do you believe in Bigfoot? And if so, does he really eat beef jerky? (laughs) The Bigfoot thing is people have seen these and and I've seen a lot of compelling evidence about it. It's Whiskey Business with Dino Chipotas. Join us for what we call a good conversation with a good pour. You really can't ask for much more than that, can you, people? Check us out at whiskeybusinesspod.com, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. All right, we are back with the number five film in the Movie Marathoner's Top 10 Films of 2020. Dana, what's our fifth film? Our number five film is The Invisible Man. Oh, my God. Sydney, are you okay? Why would you just stop? Stop, Dad! Dad! No, no, Sydney, I didn't. No, what happened? What happened? What? No, 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 James, I did not do that, Sydney. I would never hit you. I love you. I would never do that, James. It was him. He's here. I swear to you. Enough. See, enough. Just stop it. Are you okay? I don't want to stay, Sydney. I'm sorry. I would never. Hey, hey. See. Right now, my priority is getting my baby somewhere safe. Do you understand? Come on, baby. It's okay. No, James, please. The Invisible Man is the last movie that you and I saw in theaters before quarantine began, and really the last kind of normal thing that we did. Um, And if it had to be any movie, I'm glad it was this one. The (laughs) synopsis from IMDb reads, When Cecilia's abusive ex takes his own life and leaves her his fortune, she suspects his death was a hoax. As a series of coincidences turn lethal, Cecilia works to prove that she is being hunted by someone nobody can see. Hmm. Some might say he's invisible. Invisible. Ooh. Ooh. Um, Elizabeth Moss turns in an awesome, if kind of deeply <laughs> aggrieving, performance <laughs> as Cecilia in this um, updated and very of our times take on H.G. Wells' Invisible Man novel all the way from 1897. Depending on who you talk to, this is a psychological thriller or science fiction horror film or some other combination of all of those words. A rom-com? <laughs> um, I don't know if anyone would call it that. Um, Get help. Yeah. This movie does not at all shy away from the fact that it is at its core about abusive relationships and about the psychological toll that abuse can continue to take even after the survivor is ostensibly free from her abuser. And it will have you questioning things you see before your very eyes and unsure of who to trust. While it's not scary in a way that I would traditionally describe a horror movie as being scary, The Invisible Man will have you feeling so tense from the moment it begins, just like the entire time you watch it, because of the way it cultivates within you 
um, Cecilia's fear of the unseen. And it can make an empty room or complete silence utterly horrifying in a way that I've never seen happen in a movie. And I think it's so smart um, the way that negative space is used. It's, It's just stunningly well done. And I definitely wouldn't classify this as like a jump scare movie, but there was one particularly memorable moment in this film where I think I did elevate a few inches out of my chair in just pure shock. (laughs) And I think you probably know what what moment I'm talking about. Um, I'm really glad that we were able to see this movie in theaters because I do think just the experience of having no escape from it and nowhere else to look or no option to pause elevated the magnitude of it. Again, it's a really intense film. And it's available to stream on HBO Max or to purchase on VOD. And I've noted that there's there's violence of this movie and, you know, it, it does, you know, deal with those themes of abusive relationships. So that's something to keep in mind. Um, so, it, you know, it's not necessarily a, a happy watch, but I think that it is a very unique film. It has interesting things to say and it's really innovative. So if that sounds like something that's interesting to you, I would definitely recommend checking this out. Completely agree. Uh, I talked about the film a lot on last week's episode when I talked about the top five performances of 2020. Elizabeth Moss crushes this role. She was, I believe, my number three performance. When I talked about it, I mentioned something, and I hope I'm not beating a dead horse when I repeat it here, but the way that this film isolates and traps its protagonist so that she is completely on her own is, you use the word too, it's pure brilliance. (laughs) It doesn't feel cheap. It doesn't feel like there's any moment in the film where I thought, oh, she could just do X, Y, Z and things would be fine, right? And I just think that that makes the film feel so much scarier, so much more thrilling, so much more immersive. And I think that this film is really a masterclass in how to logically and realistically in the confines of the movie, of course, how to write your character into an unwinnable unimaginable situation and then have her come out on the other end. I think it's fantastic. And I really wish that we got to rewatch this film again, Mm -hmm. because of course, like you said, we watched this in February. So this is a distant memory in a lot of ways, but I really can't wait to check this out again. Yeah. And also if you, if you have seen this and you like it, um, we also watched, it didn't come out um, this year, so it's not on here, but Lee Wan El's um, other movie Upgrade. If you like yeah. this movie, I feel like you definitely like Upgrade. And I don't, I feel like that didn't get a lot of hype um, when it came out. So definitely check that out. I think it was on HBO. I'm not sure if it's still there, but it's, you know, it's a relatively small movie, but it's, it's really great. And it has a sort of similar kind of not not a sim- not similar themes or anything, but just aesthetic. Yeah. Um. So check check that out, even though it's not from 2020. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so he he does a really good job at towing the line. I think between horror and thriller, like you said, that there's violence in this film, and there is, but from what I remember, it's not particularly gory. No, it's not or graphic. And the the horror or the scares are more sort of like tension, a la mm-hmm. a quiet place or something like that, where you're just like. I I need to know what's going to happen. And it's not so much the more dreadful horror type mm-hmm. of stuff. So I think this is a really good film for people who are like, I'm not a huge horror fan, mm-hmm. but may still want to experience a film like this. Yeah, I remember when you did your original episode on it, when this came out, you and your guests spent a, a reasonable amount of time just discussing like, is this a horror film? And I think that people will people will have their own opinion on whether or not mm-hmm. it is because as you said it it's not gory you know it's not a slasher film or anything you know and like you said the 
the scares are so restrained. And I think a lot of times you're just you're just afraid of what could happen and not what's happening. Yeah. So that's The Invisible Man, which is our number five film of 2020. And that brings us to number four, which is Mangrove. So Mangrove is a film by Steve McQueen, and it is the first installment, I guess, in the Small Axe um, series, question mark. Uh, Basically, Steve McQueen made five films that all focus on the culture of West Indies Brits, um, which is a population of people with very little on-screen representation outside of the very stereotypical tropes and cliches. And all five films were released as a series called Small Acts, where each film is kind of set as an episode, even though they are completely different from the actors to the length to whatever the actual subject matter is. And pardon me, Dana, for getting on a soapbox here, but I'm just going to complain for a little bit, as I feel like is tradition when you're on the podcast here. But I don't really mean to tell acclaimed director Steve McQueen or trillion-dollar company Amazon Studios how to release their films, but I find the decision to release these five films as a single box on Prime Video bafflingly stupid, because each one of these films, or I mean, at, at the very least, Mangrove, because that's the only one we watch, but Mangrove at least could be released as a standalone feature, and it would warrant so much critical buzz on its own face. I think this film is absolutely exceptional. If you didn't know that this was part of a series, you would in no way feel like this is anything other than a wholly standalone thing that's worthy of its own praise. But instead, the film Mangrove is buried in this single box on Amazon Prime that you have to dig into and then find and click it. And then when you do that, you're looking at this horizontal row of episodes and you see that the first quote unquote episode is two hours and you go, wow, that's a huge time investment for a single episode of a single series. And I think that the idea that this film is some sort of first entry in a series similar to Black Mirror is a real disservice to how excellent and important this film is. (laughs) And while we're also complaining about things, the fact that the LA Film Critics awarded Best Picture to the Small Acts series is the dumbest thing that i've ever heard it makes no sense that is literally like awarding best picture to a five film collection of quentin tarantino it's completely nonsensical dana my favorite color is a set of blue green and red did you know my favorite movie is the mcu like (laughs) my favorite football team is the afc so like it it, it's just really, really dumb. I mean, I think that you should award it to Mangrove because it alone is so, so worthy of winning that award. I think it, it makes no sense. And I don't I feel like I mean, I guess I could have done research into why they did this, but I did not. Um, And I feel like it I I, I want to say I feel like it probably wasn't Steve McQueen's choice. Like it seems like something that would be like coming from the studio. But then I don't know why he would have made a bunch of stuff without you know gradually releasing them so so yeah it it is a little bit mystifying and yeah it's not a knock on the quality at all to say i think it's absurd to award this collection in in the way that you would give yeah yeah, because and again it's because of the quality of them that it feels almost worse because it's like again like like okay mangrove can win an award like let just let it win let it win its own awards um and and that's not to say that other ones can't as well but but yeah, it it is a, it is a weird way of of doing things, and I I can't imagine the other awards 
outfits are going to do it that way. Well, this but... isn't even eligible for the Oscars, which is really stupid. They're eligible for the Emmys. Yeah, I don't, so <laughs> I, I don't get it's, it. It's baffling to me. And I mean, you're right. It probably would have made sense for me to research whose choice this was, like whether Steve McQueen has said anything about it. But I thought that it would be better content for me to just complain oh, for yeah. a couple minutes without yeah, doing yeah, any yeah, research. Yeah. Uh, that's kind of the brand over here. <laughs> but um, I mean, at the very least, them awarding it is good press and acknowledgement of these films. So like you did it the wrong way, but I'm glad you did do it because I, I think that Mangrove is a phenomenal film. So let me talk about that film, which we haven't done yet. It Basically, Mangrove is about the arrest and trial of the Mangrove Nine, a group of black activists who were protesting against the London police in 1970. So if that sounds familiar to you, at least in premise, this film is quite similar to Trial of the Chicago Seven, which may explain why I like both of them so much. It's their courtroom dramas. Um, but I do think that the execution and very importantly, the intent of this film is very different. This film is much more about the very real injustices that people of color face when confronting the law. This is about systematic oppression and otherization of a culture of people, specifically a culture of people that we don't, as general we, don't know that much about. This is about community, and it's about legacy, and it's about fighting justice, not just for yourself, but for your people. And essentially, I think these are things that Trial of the Chicago 7 really has no business talking about, especially mm -hmm. given the director of that film. But I think in that way, Steve McQueen's film feels more important. Like, there's really no defense of that. It, it feels more timely. And I think ultimately that's why Mangrove is higher on the list. This film is powerful. Um, it's emotional. I think, as I said before, it's illuminating and shows a culture that we really don't often see. But on top of that, which I think is where sometimes Steve McQueen falters a little bit, um, it's also entertaining and really, really gripping. Like, you really care about the characters. When they are given the verdict at the end of this film, you care what happens to them. And when they're going through the trial, when one of them gets the one up on the prosecution, it's like a cheering moment. Mm -hmm. Or when one of them kind of falters and gets knocked down, you feel really frustrated and infuriating or and infuriated. So I really, really enjoy this film. It's fantastic. And I would highly recommend that you go watch it. Yeah, I would echo all of that. And I would say that another thing that is interesting about this film that I think that it it delves more into than um, films on similar subject matter that I've seen before is the um, the diasporic community that exists um, here in London. Um, this community of people who are originally from the West Indies or their families are from the West Indies and they have, you know, their own subculture within London. But then um, there are there are also people either who they're married to or in their families um, who are native to the UK and their, you know, their experience of being black in the UK is maybe a little bit different from people who came from a majority black country. And the dynamic between these different these different individuals, I think, is really, really thought provoking mm -hmm. to watch about how, you know, your experience would differ if you were raised in a country where you are a minority versus if you were raised in a country where you were, were part of a majority racial group and then you um, moved and how that would impact you. And and in light of how it would impact you, which is often in adverse ways, why why would you do it? And and, you know, we do we are, you know, confronted with that of of the the fact of why well, why did they why did they have to leave and now now they've created this this community and the mangrove restaurant 
that um, one of the characters opens is 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 central to that community. But then there there is this tension throughout about the idea of going back and should we just go back? Um, and I think that this is what this movie brought up for me that I thought was that was unique to to other movies that I've seen. Absolutely, this film is just really really dense in terms of a lot of what it's talking about. And I think in that way, it reminds me a lot of like One Night in Miami, which doesn't make our list simply because um, it wasn't a 2020 wide release. Mm -hmm. Um, But both films kind of explore the divisions within ideologies and where those divisions come from, particularly in a black community. And just getting to see that in this film and how it manifests sort of in what these characters decide to do is really quite fascinating. To end on a slightly less serious note, when we're talking about this film, there is a thing that apparently is is really common in Britain. And by common, I mean mandatory by law, I guess, where if you're a lawyer in British oh. court, you wear a fucking wig. I don't know how you didn't know that. Well, I, I don't... I was kind of... I, I don't know. I don't know either. Like, I guess... I just assumed that they don't do that anymore. Like, sure, maybe they did it in like the 1700s when white wigs were the norm. But it's so funny to watch (laughs) these people wear these fake, completely unrealistic wigs. And and they don't even like try and hide their hair. They just plop it on their head. And we first saw this when you were watching um, Broadchurch season two, which is all about British court drama stuff. (laughs) But like... It's all about wearing I, a stupid wig. I don't know. I don't, I don't mean to core. be like punching up at the British courts, but it's so silly. And I'm sure anybody listening to this who's British is probably like, yeah, the American is saying <laughs> that we're stupid. But like, I guess I'm not even saying that. It, it's just really, really silly to see these people do that. Yeah, no, it, it is. Um, and if you, if, you know, you can sometimes like in Parliament, they they will wear them. Um, and like British Parliament? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, I thought you meant our Parliament. We don't have a Parliament. Oh. <laughs> Like I mean, we like standing in court. Yeah. Um. But yeah, it is. It is. It is funny. They do look silly. Um. Yeah. I agree. Great insight over there from Thank my you. co-host. Thank you, Dana. All right, that is Mangrove, part of the Small Axe series, but should not be. Um. Just, just go watch this film. Um. I'm really excited to dig in more into the Small Axe series. I mean, I'm sure there's lists out there that could easily all five of those films could be in the top ten. Yeah. But definitely check out Mangrove. It's fantastic. And you can check that out on Prime Video. All right, Dana, what is our number three film from 2020? Our number three film is The Personal History of David Copperfield. Donkeys! Somebody, somebody, please. King Charles I, are we certain that he's dead? When last seen in public, his head was not attached to his body. Good, thank you. Much obliged. Boy, there. What a delightful movie this is. Yeah. And not to be all like in these unprecedented times, but I just found this movie to be a nice escape to elsewhere, to a place filled with whimsy and wonder. And that is not to say that the film is all sunshine or that David Copperfield does not encounter any adversity in his personal history, which Google synopsizes as the life of David Copperfield from childhood to maturity with his own adventures and the web of friends and enemies he meets along the way. 
Wow. <laughs> Super vague. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, it is it is sort of sort of a fictional biography of a person. So, you know, a lot happens um, and, it, you know, it sort of makes sense for it to be vague. Yeah. But this is an adaptation of the Charles Dickens novel, David Copperfield, which I admit I have never read. And you call yourself a Dickens head. <laughs> I've never called myself that. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, um, that's me. And I think that um, Dickens novels, they have a lot of potential for filmic adaptation because there is so much humor and so many fun characters. And the exercise of editing it down to fit into a film is something that I think a lot of Dickens' work can actually benefit from because a lot of his works are simply too long. So why do you hate Charles Dickens, Dana? Um, what is this? It's a, it's a personal thing. I don't really want to get into it on the pod. Um, we'll okay. talk offline. Okay. Um, so if you're a scholar of 19th century Brit lit, don't come for me. But I love what Armando Iannucci does with this work and how he captures that Dickensian spirit while also making this work something that feels very modern. The personal history of David Copperfield stars Dev Patel in its main role, which is, of course, a bit of a subversion of that from that original material that this character would have been white. I don't even know if it's addressed in the book, you know, ever saying that he was white, but it was definitely something that would have been assumed at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and so this movie is is a case that employs what can be called colorblind casting, which has its proponents and its critics. And proponents would tell you that this practice opens up so many roles to non-white actors that would, you know, traditionally be sort of closed off. And then critics might tell you that this casting practice belies the racialized complexity of our society and is sort of the equivalent of an I don't see color attitude. And I'm sure there are also critics who would just be like, it's bad to let someone who's not white do this. But like, you know, at a certain point, that's just like. Kind yeah, we of, don't need to yeah. give them a platform. Um, so but but I am saying this to say, like, I, I feel like there are some like criticisms that aren't just rooted in that. But I, I, mm -hmm. I don't ultimately agree with those. But I'm just saying that, like, I don't. I'm not here to say, like, this is the only way to do things, but I do think it works in this movie. And I think that the practice of casting a diverse cast in this movie, it doesn't matter that these characters were initially conceptualized as white, I don't think, because this movie is not trying to be, you know, a history of England or anything where yeah. to to erase the fact that people of different races were treated differently would be to, you know, completely rewrite history because this movie isn't, it's not about that. And I think that Dev, Dev Patel plays David Copperfield excellently. Um, and he has that kind of earnest charisma that makes this movie wonderful in the way that it is. And beyond Dev Patel, this movie is decorated with so many fun side characters, including those played by the likes of my favorites, such as Tilda Swinton and Hugh Laurie, both of whose characters I found absolutely hilarious. <laughs> and I spent so much of this movie smiling. It's actually rated PG, which is fun. And I really do think that this movie is accessible for enjoyment by a really wide demographic audience, including relatively young kids and relatively old adults. And it's illuminated with childlike wonderment of the world, but it's at the same time grounded by calamity that draws you out of that wonderment as you age when you watch David Copperfield age. I think, though, that in this movie, the wonder wins out and you, you leave it with at least a fleeting sense of appreciation for life. And, you know, peace with the reality that there will be moments of darkness and that there will be hard times, but that we'll get through them together. Um, and, you know, the, those moments will end and the sun will rise. And I just left this feeling feeling happy. So I would recommend it. It's available to rent or buy pretty much anywhere on VOD. I talked a lot about this movie last week because Dev Patel was also in my top five. I believe it was my number four. And I completely agree with you. This movie is Paddington. But instead of a Peruvian bear, it's Dev Patel. 
And I mean, I don't really have too much else to add. I, I think what's really wonderful about this film is that there's no real antagonist, at least for most of the film. There's no real conflict for most of the film. And the whole thing is just propelled by a very modern sensibility of quirky fun and heart. Um, and it is, like you're saying, PG. So it's really fun to see Armando Iannucci's type of witty uh, humor, I guess, directed at something so wholesome instead mm -hmm. of the more common Armando Iannucci stuff like Veep, of course, but also Death of Stalin. A lot of those are very kind of acerbic mm -hmm. and a little biting. There's no there's no bad bone in the body of this movie. Everything mm -hmm. is just heart and fun and happiness. And it's really like a salve, mm -hmm. basically, for, for these times, but also for any time. So great choice. I know it technically came out in 2019, but I think it didn't get wide release until 2020. And also, this is our list, so shut up. But like, yeah, great film. Completely agree. That is The Personal History of David Copperfield, which is our number three film. That leads us to our number two film of 2020, Boys State. So with Boys State, Dana, I think our list now hits every single one of the major streaming surfaces outside of Disney+. Plus. Ah. Yeah. So this is a film uh, from Apple TV+. Plus. It's a documentary about an organization called the American Legion that creates a program called Boy State, where boys come together to create a mock representative government from the ground up. And this, I'm told, I don't know for a fact, but this takes place all across the country. And it's my understanding that this happens basically every year. And this document specifically focuses on the Texas boys state. So kids all across, um, all across from Texas come together and it follows a handful of these different 17 year olds as they go through this program of creating a government and, and the different things that they have to do. And I think this film is incredible for several reasons. Not only is it incredibly revealing about the way that politics work in this country um, as we watch these kids elect their own officials, run campaigns, and so on. Um, that part is really interesting, but this film is also really captivating as a narrative feature where there's like a uh, an act one, an act two, and an act three. And what I mean by that is that this film almost feels scripted in how the different storylines for each of these characters pay off. The kids that they choose to follow are just absolutely fascinating test cases. Like, there's only a few main characters, but every single one of them has this almost cliche story arc. Like, if you wrote characters like this in a screenplay, it would almost be completely unrealistic. Like, you would be like, there's no way these people would actually change their mind at this moment, or there's no way that they would actually incite this speech at this moment. There's this kid, Stephen Garza, who is basically making a campaign speech at one point that feels like it's the speech that a character makes to overcome adversity at the end of an Oscar drama film. It's like, it's so fascinating to watch these real people fall into these storytelling tropes that I'm almost certain were completely uncontrollable by the documentary crew. So that alone is just incredible to watch. And every single one of these kids is just so compelling. They feel so well-written that the entire time I was watching this, I was just in awe that these were real human beings and that they were saying such profound things, regardless of whether they actually meant for them to be profound or not. And there are so many of these sound bites in the documentary that you get from these 17-year-old kids that can summarize decades of government politics in this country. 
And there are scenes or moments in this film that feel like direct parody of American politics. And whether or not they're like kind of swayed to do that by the documentary crew doesn't really matter because of how natural and authentic it feels in the documentary. It's just such an incredible watch to just watch these kids do something that feels so cinematic. And so I think that Boy State, it speaks to a very American ideals. It bears a lot of very uncomfortable truths about American politics. It can be really upsetting at times because the film does show that like what we're seeing at the national level is already happening with the next generation of people who are theoretically supposed to lead us. But in another way, the film is also kind of hopeful in certain aspects. So regardless of how you interpret it, I feel like this is kind of a must watch. Yeah, I, th- I think this documentary is so good. And I thought it was terrifying. I, I was greatly <laughs> disturbed by what I was seeing. I can't even say I was shocked, but I was. But it, like you said, there are some things that are uplifting. There are definitely reminders that there are individuals who are pursuing good things for the sake of pursuing good things. But it's something that I feel like if you like have a son like you should, you know, watch it with them and just like have a conversation maybe. <laughs> um, because like you said, we, we're seeing that the people who are, you know, running our country or who are involved with running our country who about whom we might be asking, well, like how, how did, like, how did this happen? Or like, how did we get here? How did this person become this way? And we, we're seeing a a sort of prequel as to what kind of how that is happening and the, and the fact that it you know in in kids as young as as high school kids and even before that um that radicalism in in not a positive way can kind of easily be cultivated especially um you know when groups i would say of men are left to kind of um compete with each other in a way that is not accompanied by um, you know, uh, values of community that ground men outside of their own individual pursuits, if that makes sense. Like, I, I think I'm not to say, you know, like getting a bunch of boys together to do something is bad because I don't think that um, like I don't think that the the project is inherently flawed or that I do think that uh, men, especially young boys, could definitely benefit from this country and having a healthy outlet for community, because I do think a lot of the problem that we face is because a lot of men feel very emotionally isolated. But it's almost this shows kind of what happens when that when that extreme individualism is is taken and then suddenly put on a big platform where they have the opportunity to influence other other boys around them and then eventually as we see influence you know an entire country that that bad things <laughs> yeah. can happen and i think that this documentary is shot in such an interesting way and in that it's so intimate and it really mm-hmm. feels like they didn't know that there were cameras there or but at the same time it feels like they were so close to them when they were filming like i don't know how they did it it feels very fly on the wall they do have you know moments where they sit down with the Talking boys, heads, yeah. um, but but they're also you know they're just in these these big rooms where they're filming, um, you know town hall type meetings that they're having, and yeah, I would really recommend this to to almost anyone. It, it just is really fascinating. Yeah, I, I like the point that you make about sort of what happens when a group of boys come together, and sort of how boys interact in that environment. And I think one point that this film makes with the character can't remember his name, I'm sorry. But one point that this film makes is that every single one of these boys 
has an understanding of what they think all the other boys want to hear. Mm -hmm. And they all think... Robert, I believe. Yeah. This guy specifically is like, he's playing his campaign to cater to the things that he thinks these Texas kids want to hear. Mm -hmm. And the film goes to the so far to say that like, that might not even necessarily be true. Like so much of this stuff is almost fabricated and not to, you know, take the blame away from the young men or anything who are obviously much more in control of their destiny than many other types of people in this country. But like, it's almost sort of like predetermined by society in a way that like, yeah, when you get a bunch of guys together, you have to be like rowdy and and yell Mm -hmm. because that's what they want. And that's what we're told they want, even though that's not necessarily true. And I think the nuance that that film suggests, it's it's not the main takeaway of the film, but I think that's just another layer on top of all of this that really shows like how fucked we are yeah, (laughs) and like how much we fundamentally need to change everything from the ground up in terms of how we as a society view not just governmental politics, but also like gender norms and what is expected of men. And I'm sure there's, I I think they are making like another documentary called Girl State because there's something similar to this Mm -hmm. where women come together and do this. And I bet it's going to be so fascinating how different it is. And it's probably not going to be nearly as problematic, but I'm sure there will be a lot of other things in that film about like what is expected from a group of girls. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, I think this film is so important. Definitely just watch it, dissect it, just let it pour over you. Yeah. And again, I think that it's, I think that it's something that that makes us like check in on, you know, I think I think you and I talked after about like, oh, like, do you think like, you know, if you had been this age, like, what would you have been like if you were there? Or, like, how do you think if you were in this kind of setting, like you would interact? And I think it's like it's interesting probably for, for men to think about that. Or again, if you, you know, if you have a son or if you know a, a young teen, um, just to think about, you know, what what he might be like in this setting and, you know, the fact that people might be completely different, you know, just with their families than they will be once they're in this setting where they're kind of in pursuit of power all of a sudden. And also almost encouraged to do bad things yeah. or things that are not looked upon as mm-hmm. positive in other settings. But but that encouragement comes from the group because they're not being encouraged externally to do bad things, but they, well, they are I- catering to what they think they need to do to to get elected to the positions they're running for but no one is no one is saying like you know go in there and play dirty they are deci- they're making those choices yeah but i would also say that they are encouraged externally by like the the previous year like they hear the stories of the previous year who decided to vote like a cow mayor or whatever those those crazy stories are yeah. and they're also influenced by seeing that happen on the highest level of government yeah and no. so it is really fascinating to like you're you're right. There, I think there's pressure from both. Like there is internal pressure, but then there's also the external pressure of being like, "This is where you do this." You yeah. know, I, I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I I see what you're saying, and I agree with that. That it's it's, but it's it's coming from those societal pressures, not yeah, from yeah. not from an instructive. You know, the people right. running the event aren't telling them this, but, right. but they're I mean, just hands taking off what they is see. Also, not necessarily the best way, in my yeah, opinion. To, no, yeah, no, yeah, they're but they're taking what they see in the world, and they are kind of recreating it, and that's what's disturbing. Yeah, yeah. and I mean, I've never done this exercise, but like I've I was a Boy Scout, and so like I did do things where it was like only men or boys <laughs> in 
these closed off environments and kind of left to their own will. And like, you know, I, we didn't do things like some of the really terrible things that they do in this film, like uh, making all those meme posts that turn out to be really racist or homophobic or whatever. But I can see uh, you going back to like reflecting on what would you have done in that situation? Like I could see where, like how universal this experience is to a lot of boys in America, which is also scary Mm -hmm. because it's so easy to be like, oh, whatever, it's Texas, you know, or something like that. And I mean, I guess I'm from Arizona, so it probably wasn't much better, but just it is so fascinating to just put this type of microcosm under a microscope and just observe. Mm -hmm. And the takeaways from that are really universally important, in my opinion. Yeah. Anyways, we could probably talk about that movie a lot more, but definitely check it out. Uh, It's our number two film, Boy State, and you can find that on Apple TV+. Plus. You probably already have a subscription to it because you probably have an iPhone, so use it. There's some good stuff on there. But with that, we've finally come to our number one film of 2020. Dana, you and I both had this on our sort of like individual rankings or whatever as number one. So there is no disagreement here. Why don't you share our number one film? Our number one film is the Netflix original movie, Hillbilly Elegy. Yeah. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's um, it's Sound of Metal. Sorry, you can cut that if you want. Okay, how is that volume? Is the volume loud enough? Good. Can you hear me? Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm going to say these words. I want you to repeat them back to me. I'm going to start with just your right ear. Okay? It's. It's. Mess. Noisy search. Throat. Ditch. Fish. Talk. This is such a unique movie. Um, It is about a heavy metal drummer's life that is thrown into free fall when he begins to lose his hearing. And that heavy metal drummer is played by Amy Adams. (laughs) Um, we, as the audience, um, as much as we can get an almost inside POV experience with regard to what it's like in, um, Ruben's mind during the loss of his hearing and the sound design in this movie, which is not normally something that I would speak of so quickly is so innovative and such, so interesting. Um, so Riz Ahmed stars as the drummer Ruben, um, and he's not deaf in real life. So I don't mean to speak for anyone for whom that is your lived experience, but in my estimation, he turns in an awesome performance playing um, someone who newly becomes deaf in this highly emotional movie. And the hearing loss occurs at the very beginning, so it's no spoiler to tell you, I think, that soon after this occurs, Ruben's girlfriend Lou brings him to stay in this sober community for deaf people who are also recovering addicts. Um, And there he's left to grapple with his condition and the fact that his life as a musician and just as an individual will never be the same. And while themes related to disability characterize this movie more overtly, I think that Sound of Metal is a powerful movie about recovery from addiction as well. Even though um, he's not actively using at the time, Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's that recovery specifically that I think that this movie deals with. And one of the most memorable characters for me is is Joe, the head of the sober house played by Paul Racy, 
who in real life is the hearing son of deaf parents, and perhaps that's why his performance feels so earnest, both with regard to helping Ruben along his journey sort of in learning how to kind of navigate being a deaf person. But um, it also, he has this something like vaguely priest-like about him, like there's something like almost mm-hmm. like holy in the way that Ruben just goes to him for advice and how he's sort of a, a, a guide for him in his sobriety as well. And I thought that it's it's a really touching relationship that develops between them um even though like eventually some some conflict might arise and this movie i think is a reminder of our fragile relationship to the lives that we currently live and we see how quickly rubens is transformed overnight by something completely out of his control and we are reminded that even our bodies themselves the things that should feel that they are more ours than anything else are in many ways not in our control And I'm interested to continue hearing how different people perceive the third act of this movie, especially because I think there's definitely a possibility for some tension there, depending on sort of how you conceive, you know, his disability and, you know, if if that's something that he should just accept and try to live with or if it's something if he can change it, if he should. That's sort of a question that gets tossed around that I think is really interesting. And I would recommend this movie to pretty much everyone. I did mention that um, the the themes of addiction are there, but there's no, again, there's no graphic drug use. So even if that's something that's sensitive, I think that pretty much anyone can enjoy this movie, which is available to stream on Amazon Prime. This is the last time I'll say this, but I also talked about this film <laughs> last week. Rizamed was me and my guest, Pat Burke's number one performance of 2020. So... As far as I'm concerned, pretty much universal praise. That's three people now, so that's all <laughs> that's you need. All. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I, I've talked a lot about this film, and, and you hit everything right on the head. I, I completely agree. I really love this film. You hit the sound design, the emotion, just the way that this film ends, like the the last scene of this film, and what that sort of means is um, complicated uh, for people who are deaf um, or kind of a a complicated conclusion for it to end on. And I think that's really sincere and genuine and just a really, really amazing representation of what this type of experience is like. I mean, I guess I don't know for sure, but insofar as like being able to experience this through a medium, like I feel like this film truly does what films are supposed to do, which is transport you and put you in the shoes of another character. So, yeah, really amazing film. And I think it would be really hard-pressed to find a film even in a regular year that would top this one for number one film of the year. Yeah, I agree with with all of that. Again, it's... Maybe Kong versus Godzilla. Maybe, true, true, yeah. true. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm, at this point, maybe I'm just reiterating too much, but the the experience, the way that you will experience sound in this movie is is unlike anything that i feel like i've encountered in a movie before and i think it's worth that for that alone even if the movie the rest of the movie weren't good i think that would be really interesting but it is a good movie so (laughs) um so it has that going for it too so yeah. yeah so that is our number one film sound of metal a huge recommendation from us over here at movie marathoners um you can definitely check that out on amazon prime And with that, this has been the official Movie Marathoners Top 10 Films of 2020. Dana, do you mind stating our list one more time in full? Sure. So that's Baccarat, Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, Bad Education, Palm Springs, Trial of the Chicago 7, Invisible Man, Mangrove, The Personal History of David Copperfield, 
Boy's State, and The Sound of Metal. Awesome. And before we close out, let's just uh, take a second to mention any honorable mentions that we have. So these are films that either just barely didn't make the list or ones that you wanted to specifically shout out here. Dana, do you have any? I do. First among these is a little movie called Eurovision, the Story of Fire Saga. (laughs) And I know that it's not high art or anything, but I love this movie so much. And I think that everyone should watch it. I think it's just super fun. Again, it's just some nice, good old-fashioned escapism in a way that, like, you'll just have a good time for however long the runtime is. It's about Will Ferrell and Rachel McAdams as an Icelandic pop duo who realize their dreams of competing at Eurovision. And the music in this movie is so fun, and I listen to it, like, unironically in regular rotation. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I've heard the soundtrack many times. I mean, this was one that I was, like, perfectly comfortable with putting on this list as sort of like a a dark horse number 10, but... um... It was tough to find a place for it, for sure. Yeah. And this also does star, in, in in addition to the people I mentioned, it stars Dan Stevens, who I think has a kind of runaway performance that's super fun. <laughs> yeah. I will then go on to shout out Promising Young Woman, which we just watched for the first time the other day after hearing all the hype on Twitter for far too long. And I think that this movie is probably on each of our individual top tens, but we just each had like, yeah. other movies that we didn't want to take off. So it just didn't work on the the compromise top ten. But this is this movie's awesome. And Mati will be talking about it next week on the pod, so I won't get too much into the plot. But it's it's great and Yeah, it really just barely, barely, barely didn't make the cut. Yeah, well, there was a lot of of agonizing on how we could get it in. Yeah, the reason we watched Bad Education again was to make sure that we were comfortable with kicking it out for Promising Young Woman. And then we just decided to keep Bad Education in because we really like that one. Yeah. So again, that is now available on VOD, so you can check it out. And lastly, I will just say I did think about talking about adding Borat subsequent movie film to the top 10. <laughs> yeah. It's just really fun. And, you know, Sasha Baron Cohen's character stuff is, of course, not for everyone. And at this point, you probably kind of know if it's for you or not. So if it's not for you, that is totally fine. But if you've liked anything he's done in the past, then you'll love this. I mean, he's he's so daring. Um, I can't imagine, like, getting myself into any of the situations he gets himself into um, because I would die of uncomfortableness. But um, it's absolutely hilarious. So yeah, those are my honorable mentions. Cool. Uh, I'll just hit a couple more other ones that I want to shout out. Just Mercy is a phenomenal film that is technically a 2019 film, but I didn't see it until January when it was in wide release. So uh, I just wanted to shout it out. It's a film with Michael B. Jordan and Jamie Foxx about Brian Stevenson and his work on uh, helping or defending people on death uh, death row. So great film, would highly recommend that. Um, you hit Promising Young Woman. I'll say Love and Monsters is a film that we saw recently. It's another type of film that feels like a salve and it's a lot better than it should have been. Uh, I really liked the monster design and the tone of the film. It's in no way a perfect film, but I did really enjoy it. Yeah, I think this is this is a really fun movie. It's definitely not a serious movie. It's no. you know it's just a little romp, but um, I definitely recommend it as well. Yeah, uh, and that's on VOD as well, I believe. Um, shouting out our friends over at Disney Plus, I got to say that Soul is really oh, good. Yeah. Amazing first act, so so second act, and a really solid third act. I would say it's just outside the top ten for us. Um, 
maybe if we rewatched a couple of the other films on this, we'd be like, oh, maybe Soul should take it in place. I don't know. But um, yeah, great film. Always love what Pixar is doing, especially from Pete Doctor. Yeah, I actually probably would have. I just kind of spaced on putting it on my honorable mentions, but but it definitely earns a spot there. Um, yeah, it's not a perfect movie. There are, you know, some things that I don't love about it, but I think it's it's, you know, a super thought provoking, um, yeah. you know, Pixar movie that is as much, if not more applicable to adults lives than kids. So, um, yeah, we both liked it a lot. Yeah. Uh, a couple other fun ones. Um, Happiest Season. I thought this film was just an absolute delight. <laughs> it worked really well for me, and I kind of wasn't expecting that. I think it would honestly make a top 20 for me, for sure. Um, it's just not quite as great or trying to be as great as some of these other films. But really recommend that one on Hulu if you haven't had the chance to check it out. Next, I've got Wolf Walkers, which is the hand-drawn animation film on Apple TV+. Beautiful looking. Uh the message and the themes are really great. I feel like it's very subversive while also feeling like a very blend of a lot of classic other animated films. So I would definitely recommend that one. It's kind of, it feels like it's kind of a hidden gem out there on Apple TV+. And then lastly, I just want to shout out On the Rocks because I thought this was great. I think it's funny. I think it's sweet. It's a very cozy film that feels like it really works. Um, at home. I know Dana's you're not as huge a fan of it as I am, but it's really not trying to do in my opinion as much as some of Sofia Coppola's other films, but as like a lighthearted exploration of a father-daughter relationship. I liked it a lot and you can also check that out on Apple TV Plus. I guess this is my plug for Apple TV Plus. I I don't know, but a lot of these honorable mentions are on Apple TV Plus. Watch uh, Ted Lasso. Oh yeah, definitely do watch Ted Lasso. That's the best movie of 2020. <laughs> All right. Well, Dana, as always, thank you so much for joining me. You're welcome. Um, this was great. Is is there anything specific you'd like to plug here? Um, not other than watch Eurovision, the story of Fire Saga on Netflix. And if you're in the Academy, vote for it. Best song. Yeah. Those songs slap. At least like give it, go on Spotify and find the soundtrack and give it a chance. Like I would, if some of these things came on, like when I was like out for the night, I would be very excited to dance maybe someday we'll be out yeah, for the night again remember going out good times yeah the intro music for this episode is a piece called work by kevin mcleod and you can find more of his work at incompetech.com if you'd like to keep up with this podcast and find out when we release new episodes you can follow us on twitter at movie Maripod or on facebook at facebook.com slash movie Maripod. that's movie m-a-r-a pod and you can always reach out to us at our email, moviemarathonerspod at gmail.com. You can find more episodes of this podcast at our website, evergreenpodcasts.com slash movie-marathoners. And we are also on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, and wherever else you find podcasts. So please subscribe or write a review if you like what we're doing. And any feedback you have to help improve the podcast is always appreciated. So thank you all for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time when I'm joined by Erica Richards for full reviews of Promising Young Woman and One Night in Miami, both phenomenal films that I'm really excited to talk about, so stay tuned for that. Until then, remember that life's a marathon, so let's take it one movie at a time. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. 
You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.